The guests on Love Hurts occasionally use some adult language and go into some more intense subject matter, but that's kind of how real life works anyway. This is Love Hurts. I'm Brian Berlin. Today's guest is Kevin Allison. Kevin is the creator and host of Risk, a podcast where people share stories that they never thought they'd share in public. The first sexual experience Kevin had after his marriage ended at age 40 really stuck with him, so much so that he shared the story of that heartbreak days after it happened on his podcast. In our conversation, he looks back on that story and how he's changed and navigated dating and the kink community since that experience. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Hello. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Have you gone crazy in isolation yet? You know, I, I'm I'm doing okay because I'm staying so goddamn busy uh, figuring out how to change my business. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I was a work-at-home guy already, but now we're transforming the way that we do a lot of things. So I'm staying very, very busy. I, it, it's mostly self-care that I'm worried about, you know, like eating right and exercising and all those kinds of things. I got to change all that as well. Yeah, I feel similarly where I'm like, I'm very used to working from home. But yeah, it's like now there's all these new things to figure out. And it's also staying sane on top of that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I guess you didn't have a lot. I guess you have time. This is a good time to take time to do this. But (laughs) it is indeed this. We're going to talk today about a story that I have avoided for maybe nine years now. Like in 2009, I I had been trying to be a, a sketch comedian for for the prior 12 years or so getting up on stage and doing andy kaufman like stuff you know character bits and in 2009 my friend michael Ian black saw me do a character show and afterwards he said dude your life is so crazy you should just tell true stories and i said that's too risky. And and he said, that's the whole idea. <laughs> like that it would be awesome if it's too risky. So I created Risk, this podcast where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So what happened was when I created Risk, my marriage fell apart. Uh, I had been married, uh, legally married, to someone for about I think three and a half years at that point but but together we had been together for nine years uh okay my ex-husband Ariel and I and when I created Risk it was a real stress on our marriage because I, I created this thing that I deeply 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 believed in and thought had a huge future in front of it and I just started working on it 24 hours a day and it was making no money whatsoever in the beginning. And he said, Kevin, you have got to get a full-time job or we're, we're done. And I was so passionate about risk because it had been 12 years since I'd been working on a work of art that I actually believed in and that I thought had a future. And so 
we decided to break up because because at that point, you know, risk, I, I really wanted to to make it my future. It was so funny because my my husband and I, by the way, are still very dear friends. Um, we still love one another and are kind of more like brothers now, I guess you would say. But anyway, <laughs> the day he was leaving the apartment, you know, carrying his last box of clothes or whatever out of the apartment... He said, oh, there's this new thing that I think will be very helpful to you. You should check it out. And he showed me on the phone how to download Grindr. I always find it so funny that the last thing my husband did. (laughs) Just introduce you to the world of dating apps. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, I guess like that makes sense why you're still friends today. It's like that <laughs> you you still love and care about each other even though you're not working out as a couple. Yeah, I'm sure he did not know what a Pandora's box he was introducing <laughs> me to either, you know? And let me explain a little bit about my sexual history. I knew I was gay from the beginning of consciousness. I knew that I was inherently this thing. I was raised in a very devoutly Catholic family in a very Republican town in the Midwest. And so I was terrified that if people found out, I would lose all my loved ones, people would reject me. And I, um, you know, I always saw whoever I was attracted to as being like beauty and I was the beast, you know, like, like whoever I was attracted to, uh, I was, you know, I wanted him to be my buddy, my, my kind of like my little buddy. I always wanted kind of like a little brother. I always wanted like that sort of situation, but I always saw that guy as being beauty and me, the beast, because if he ever found out that I was attracted to him physically, he'd think I was a monster. So that's how I grew up. Now, when I came to New York in my teens to go to NYU, I was 18 when I came to New York, um, I started going to sex clubs all the time. And for me, that was incredible because I didn't have to deal with all of my terror around being rejected. I didn't have to worry about... I mean, of course, you go to sex clubs and you get rejected a lot, but not in an emotional way because yeah, it's like bo- the stigma is no longer. I guess you're not dealing with the Catholic, Republican Midwest world, and you're dealing with a place where people are already accepting. They might be rejecting you personally, but they're not rejecting you as your identity. Exactly, and there's this weird thing that happens in a lot of sex clubs or orgies or things like that, depending on, I'm talking about, we're going back to the nineties here for this. <laughs> uh, you know, there's much more woke sort of uh, sex parties around and about in the queer community today. But back then, if you went into a sex club, it was almost like you were entering the unconscious. Like no one has a name. If you ask someone <laughs> their name, they'll act like you've like, you know, destroyed the code, you know, uh, no phone numbers are ever exchanged. People behave as if this isn't real life. You know, a lot of people go into those places who are in on the down low, who have a wife and kids and all that kind of thing. So I got very, very used to having sex that way. I was terrified of going to gay bars and starting conversations with guys. So I was very used to purely physical 
interactions with strangers. And it wasn't until I was 31 that I met my husband and had a very emotional love affair. Um, our sexual compatibility was a little wonky. I was a much more sexual person than he was, but we would have emotional sex. And so I thought very, very binary at that point. I thought, oh, there's physical sex that happens at the sex clubs and there's emotional sex that happens with my husband. Um, it was very comforting to think, okay, those are two different things. Never the twain shall meet, right? Um, now, my husband was Asian and during the time I was with him, I grew more and more and more attracted to Asian guys. Um, oh, by the way, we had an open relationship, but the 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 parameters of the open relationship were that were that we couldn't date anyone else. So it wasn't polyamory. It was open in that we could have non-emotional, purely physical, as we were thinking in binary terms. So I could still go to sex clubs and he could still play around with people in steam rooms or whatever he wanted to do. Um, as long as we talked to each other about it, usually before okay. and after, right? And we were very, very good for a for most of our relationship about really checking in about all that kind of stuff. I am a, I, you know, I like just being an open book as much as possible. So that was working for us for a while, but I started on a journey after Ariel and I broke up and I discovered grinder. It was shortly thereafter that I started discovering the kink community and it was wild because i was like oh gosh there's so I, I here i am 41 years old and i'm starting to understand that there's so much more to my sexuality that i've never understood and realized simply because i was thinking in such simplistic binary ways and so it was the internet and kink events and stuff like that that i started to explore after i broke up with ariel that really it, it's amazing how much older and wiser I am at 50 than I was at 41. Like, it, it shocked me to be discovering throughout my 40s, oh my gosh, 90% of my own sexuality I never even knew was there. So I was still fresh out of my marriage, and I was still... Um, I was still only used to telling funny and very crafted stories on stage in front of live audiences where it was very much like everything's figured out to kind of be disarming and get a laugh. Yeah, I guess like in your mind, you're like, I am working on these stories and they're they're vulnerable in a way, but they're vulnerable in a way that I have created. To, and, and because I'm creating them in this way, they're sort of inherently not vulnerable because I've built them so perfectly. Exactly. And I had started recording these radio style stories with other people on risk where, you know, for example, a young lady came and, and told about the child molestation that she suffered through when she was from five years old till eight years old. And it was absolutely devastating. It was, it was a real landmark episode for us. So I was realizing, gosh, people are coming on my show 
and they're being more real than I have been so far. And so that started to make me feel a little bit like, oh my God, you you should try one of these radio style stories yourself. So I consider these three radio style stories that I told on risk when I was 41 years old. The first is called Kevin Goes to P-Town. The second is called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And the third is called Beyond Kink Camp. And one of the reasons that they're so difficult for me to listen back to now is because I say so many things in those stories that now that I'm sort of a mentor figure in the kink community, there are things that I educate younger men. No, no, don't think that way. <laughs> yeah, because at the time, <laughs> at that time, you didn't think like this is going to have as much weight to it because I'm just telling a personal experience and you're not thinking of it as like, now people are coming to me for advice and now somehow this is advice that I'm giving them in a way. Oh, absolutely. Like the minute I started, especially after I put out Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, um, immediately I started hearing from other people in the kink community. Um, that's not how you describe a trans person. And yeah. um, no, that's not how dominance and submission works. You know what I mean? I was saying, yeah. like, I was so new to everything that I was just honestly transparently guessing my way like here's the so um kevin goes to p-town here's what happened i'll tell you what happened i was invited to tell a story in provincetown about coming out about coming out to myself when i was 12 years old uh you know when i was 12 i came out to myself for the first time said it out loud to myself but by that time it was like finally because i had known my whole childhood but when i was 12 i was finally able to say all right i'm not going to go to confession and try to work this out of me with a priest and thank god for that <laughs> but no, yeah, yeah but decided no no this is what i am so i so i was invited to come out to t to this storytelling show in provincetown where all everyone was going to be queer and talking about their coming out stories so that was great so i'm on the boat out there and I, I realized oh my gosh this thing that ariel showed me called grinder um is a great way for me to be meeting people on this gay island of provincetown and during my time with my husband i got very fat I got very like out of shape and fat the way people sometimes do when they're, you know, in a long-term relationship. And so when we broke up, I was thinking in the same way that the character of Louis C.K. thinks at the beginning of the series, Louis, the TV series, Louis. And that is how can a guy in his forties who is overweight and anything have any chance of having a relationship with anybody? Well, I was so clued out that I didn't realize, oh, my God, in the gay scene, there's a whole world of the daddy boy dynamic. And there's a whole world of the bears and twinks dynamic that is going on. Right. So I open up my grinder while I'm there in Provincetown and there is this gorgeous i mean ridiculously beautiful model gorgeous 19 year old vietnamese kid who is flirting with me and i'm just 
baffled because I'm like, you know, like, wait a minute. I'm the fat, overweight Louis C.K. character from the series. What's going on here? Um, so I, I, he didn't reveal to me that he was 19. He said he was 31. And I'm someone who has just come out of an almost decade-long marriage and is way out of the dating scene and is used to thinking, oh, sex is emotional or physical. And all of a sudden, I meet this person who is being incredibly flirty to me and very sweet and very funny and very affectionate and not – I have this – it took me right back to being a little boy of seeing another boy who's so beautiful and cute and, and boyish and sweet and everything, putting that boy on a pedestal and kind of assuming that eventually he'll see that I'm a monster and reject me. And that's exactly what happens in this story, except I didn't – fully comprehend it all at the time. I've always been attracted to younger guys, but as I hit my 40s, there I was still attracted to guys who were in their 20s. That grows out of this long tradition of older gay men kind of mentoring and dating younger gay men. There's Socrates and Plato and then Plato and Aristotle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's a grand tradition of the sort of daddy boy dynamic. When we say daddy boy, that's that's now that's a BDSM terminology, which refers to role play protocol. Um, uh, where obviously the boy is not literally a boy in, yeah. in in the BDSM reality, but that's kind of the role. And the older I've gotten, I realize that there's an there's an enormous amount of learning that happens when I'm you know I have dated guys my own age as well, and I've even like slept with guys who were a good deal older than me in over the years, but. I still tend to mostly be attracted to guys in their 20s and 30s. And I find that there's a lot of learning that goes both ways. I have a lot to teach them and they have a lot to teach me about their perspectives of the world today and and where they're coming from. So you know what happened? So in the story, this young man, I call him Brian in the story, he was with a slightly older friend. Uh, I think I call him Marky. Um, Brian originally told me he was 31, which I just believed. I mean, this shows just how naive I was as well. (laughs) Like you should be able to tell the difference between a 31 year old and a 19 year old. Um, uh, so he, he was with this friend of his and this friend of his was kind of mentoring him. His, this friend of his was kind of guiding him and his friend told him the night we met at this bar. Yeah. Yeah. You should go home with this daddy. You know what I mean? So I was just stunned that this 19 year old beauty was so attracted to me. And we finally hook up We're we're in my hotel room in Provincetown and he wants me to lay on top of him and just just stay there laying on top of him because he loves my big belly and to me that that was what, that was like the most intimate thing that had happened to me since i'd been with my husband just someone saying no 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 
I like that. I like your big belly. I like to have that on top of me. Yeah, this thing that you're very self-conscious about and thinking is like, nobody would find this attractive. That person is like, oh, I want that. Yeah. I now look back at my 20s and realize I was always a daddy who wanted a boy. That's why my 20s were so frustrating (laughs) because I was always a daddy in a twink's body. (laughs) And now I'm the daddy who's always, you know, like, so, so now everything kind of makes sense. But, but yeah, that night I was so moved by him wanting to just just wanting that bit of intimacy that i was like oh my god this is as emotional as as like being with with ariel like it wasn't even about a sex act it was about intimacy yeah and so one of the things that i was not understanding at the time now that i am a very very educated kinkster i teach kink classes and all that kind of thing is it's taken me 50 years to realize, and it's the, you know, the, the lessons we learn, we learn over and over and over again, you know? It's taken me 50 years to learn, you know what, Kevin? You're a kinky motherfucker. <laughs> and you don't like anal sex. Like, <laughs> it, it, like it, it's, it's downright, it's downright challenging for gay men who just, aren't all that interested in fucking or being fucked to grapple with that because especially since the dawn of grinder people love binary labels so people on grinder will say i'm a top or i'm a bottom and there's this assumption in that that all of male to male sexual activity basically boils down to anal sex and whether you're a top or a bottom so it took a long time for me to kind of realize you know what there are thousands of sexual activities that you can do with people even just laying on top of someone with a big belly you know what i mean i was so moved that this young beautiful man was so into me and not seeing me as an old beast or whatever that uh I it was kind of like the whole thing plays out like Madam Butterfly, where one night of romance equals falling head over heels in love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess at that time, and you've kind of like touched upon this throughout what you've been talking about so far, but it's like you're out of your first real loving, emotional, everything relationship, and yeah. you've never really had that combination of sex and emotional before that so in your head you're like oh i found it again right like there's got to be that part of you that's like great i i've i've won like i i thought this was going to take a while but now i found these two things that i want and they're here again and i can just have them absolutely and and being still so new to this that you're not realizing there's so much more to it than that yeah yeah so what happened was i thought I was going to have to leave Provincetown the next day after this Madam Butterfly-like night of perfect romance where I thought I had met maybe the next love of my life, which was absurd of me. And it was absurd of Madam Butterfly. (laughs) 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 But anyway, uh, but the next day, 
the cleaning lady came in to clean up the hotel room and 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 I said, "Well, I'm off." And she was like, "What do you mean you're off? Like uh you've got the room for another night. Did you not know that?" I hadn't realized that the festival, the queer storytelling festival, had paid for an extra night for me to just hang out in Provincetown. So I had already said goodbye to Brian. I I'd been like, you know, that was so lovely and romantic, you know, goodbye. And then then I texted him on Grinder you know, the next day, oh my gosh, I have another day. I want to see you again. And he said, well, me and my friends will be at the tea. You know, the tea is, um, it's a thing that happens at most gay events where four, four o'clock in the afternoon, no one's drinking tea. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's drinking like vodka or whatever. Right. Uh, that happens out on a pier, by the beach and everything. So I went to the tea and I ran into Brian and his friend Marky. And an interesting thing happened where Marky, Brian's friend, was looking at me kind of coldly and said to Brian, "Uh, we have to talk a second without you. Which was really weird. You know, like, I'm not a confrontational person. I tend to be a sort of very agreeable and submissive person when it comes to being polite in society. So I was like, oh, okay. So I walked away and then came back around to Brian. And and I was like, so what are you doing? What's going on? And and he, he literally said to me something along the lines of, why are you still talking to me? Why don't you go find someone else or something like that? And I yeah, was so it was so- this quick like mood change. Like you kind of were like you had met up with him again. Things were going well, and you're like, oh great, we're gonna have this nice. I thought we only had this one night of great everything, and they're gonna be gone. And now you're like, oh, this is we're having the same dynamic again. This kid, this friend pulls him away, and all of a sudden the dynamic is like super cold, and everything's changed. Yeah, and in retrospect. Uh, Like, at the time, I was completely bewildered. But in retrospect, I think that what happened was I didn't fuck Brian. And 90% of gay men are under, especially younger ones, with with the whole binary grinder labels thing, assume that everything boils down to fucking or being fucked. And looking back, I think that what probably happened is that Brian came back to his friend and explained, oh, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. We had a lot of sexy time. We did all kinds of stuff, but he never fucked me. And I think his friend was like, wait, he never fucked you? Forget that, dude. (laughs) That is not how a Danny boy thing should work. Yeah, and it's interesting because they're also, yeah, 19 and thinking as 19 year Like, I guess that's the other element to this whole story is, like, they're probably having as much of an awareness of sex in that world as you are at 41, you know, because you're kind of new to this world again, and they're kind of potentially discovering this world for the first time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that is what happened nowadays. You know, if I go on a kink app or whatever... Uh, I will, I know all about how to flirt and ask questions and begin to negotiate with someone about whether or not we are interested in some of the same things and about whether or not there might actually be some dynamics for us to play with. The biggest problem with most of sex and romance is people's fear 
of communicating too much. You know, people thinking, oh, well, the sexiness will will be gone if I'm too clear about the nitty gritty of what I'm into or what my fears are or what my interests are, et cetera, et cetera. And no, the truth is there are very sexy and fascinating ways to have all those conversations long before the close ever comes on. I mean, obviously, there's still going to be loads and loads of things to discover as you go. But there are some basics like, for example, yeah, I'm not going to fuck you. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the thing that I was like, wait, with how you're describing uh, how you talk to people now on, on dating apps, it feels like you are very aware of both like your needs, but also like what you're willing to do and what you're willing to put out there. And I was going to kind of, and you kind of talked about a little bit of like, it's not unsexy because it's, you're finding people who are on the same page with you. And when you do find those people, you're able to like have the fun that both of you are looking for rather than, rather than like guessing or hoping that you're going to line up and just assume that things are going to go. Okay. And yeah. And then, and then you're left in this scenario where, because you didn't communicate it feels like something went wrong and then you're left kind of guessing like you in this in this story that you told of like I don't really know what I did wrong and I can assume that this is what happened but because we never had this conversation I I don't know what I did wrong or if I did anything wrong or that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know what? I would say like I could probably create a list of like the 20 sexual activities that I find most interesting from, from, you know, number one to number 20. And, you know, when I'm speaking with someone, uh, I'll, I, I might get the impression, oh, this guy is not, does, is not interested in like the top seven or so things of mine. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not that you're just sending that list of 20 things and, and no, say no, no, back, no, no. what numbers do you like? <laughs> you're, like you're saying, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you're creating, you're creating that dynamic through conversation and, and yeah. you're, and you're bonding over that. And you're, so it's like, yeah, you're still finding what you're into and what that person's into and how your needs can be met and their needs can be met, but in a way that is romantic and flirty and sexual. Yeah, yeah. And then there are sometimes, you know, people where it's like, oh my gosh, we don't seem to match up at all. Do you want to just cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to turn on grinder or whatever and think, oh, I have to fit in to the labels that everyone else is applying to things. Yeah. And, and so I was rejected and I was devastated. You know, it's fascinating how important rejection is because that rejection dynamic is something that I grew up in my childhood thinking, oh, there's a beautiful boy, but if he finds out I like me, he's going to reject me eventually. That when I do end up rejected as viscerally as I was by Brian at that tea that day, it really triggers some deep psychological wounds in me. And when I got back to New York City, you know, two days went by. And on the third day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to improvise telling the story of what I'm going through because I was going through some serious heartache over someone I had only spent one night with. Um, I'm going to sit down in that recording booth and improvise my first radio style story for risk. Um, uh, 
like it was interest it was very interesting for me to do this because normally in storytelling we encourage people that you should have a little bit of distance from what you're talking about so that you can process it but i think that i was like no no fuck it i know i'm right in the middle of this i'm still grieving over this but i feel like it would be very good for me to get this out of my system so the story is probably about uh 30 some minutes long and it's just me and my little booth just kind of improvising and telling the audience as honestly and transparently and truthfully as I could how mortified I was to be a 20 or to be a 41 year old man who had been so naive and been so vulnerable and gotten so like silly thinking I was in love with someone over the course of just a night uh, but just wanted to share what I was going through. Telling the story and kind of opening myself up and revealing to the Risk audience how naive and vulnerable and in love and crushed and everything I was feeling, uh, it was very cathartic. And it did indeed help me to transcend and to feel like I had gotten over that much more quickly than I might have otherwise. And it is, so I think one of the things that Kevin goes to P-Town shows is the importance of knowing that storytelling can be messy. You know, the, the story, the, 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 the thing I least regret about that story or the thing I'm, I'm most proud of about that story is that it ends with the line, the truth changes. And I'm like, wow, if there's one thing that's eternal about that story, it's that it's that we grow, the people we have relationships grow we, as we have experiences, we have different vantage points on, oh, society says this, but that's not really how it is, is it, you know? Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, I would have to assume, like, like other than, yeah, maybe how you would refer to some things could be different, but it's also, like, I think one of the great parts about listening to that story in knowing the context of it is the weight and the vulnerability that you show in that moment, right? Of, like, this just happened, and I'm just going to kind of lay it all out there. Because I have to assume one of the biggest things that changes thinking about it today is like the weight of that story and what it means to you today, that experience and what it means to you today, right? Like at the time, this was a huge thing and you might not think of it as like as big of a moment in your life maybe now. You know, it's fascinating because I always also tell people that like I talk to my therapist about this. I often tell him, oh, my God. I feel like a broken record because I learned this lesson before and we had this same <laughs> conversation about a similar thing a year ago and yada, yada. Uh, and and he just reminds me, you know, no, we have complexes. We have to be relearning this. Because recently, recently, I got into a dominant and submissive relationship with someone where he is, I think, 25, and now I'm 50, and he was the master, and I was the sub. And it was very much a worshipful sort of dynamic. It was very much like bowing before the god and everything like that, you know, like the the, the boy king sort of thing. And as we got into this, I, I was like, there was a part of me that knew 
Kevin, you're putting someone much younger up on a pedestal. You know you have a history with this kind of – and sure enough, sure enough – when he turned out to be a bad texter, like I'm a great texter <laughs> and he is not. And I started to get really, really, really hurt by his short, not very thoughtful, not very uh, whatever texts back to me. And I realized I was like, oh, shit, this is like this is like Kevin goes to P-Town shit going on right now. Get a hold of yourself, Kevin. Which is also another level because it's like that's also the dynamic. Yeah, it's like the dynamic you were playing fed into your own mind of like now this person is more important than they should be because I've created them as more important. Yeah, absolutely. So so when it comes to role play with BDSM, you have to understand that there are deep psychological. There's deep psychological stuff you're playing with there and. Sometimes you have to take a little bit of a break and pull back and be like, now, wait a minute. Uh, am I – how good am I feeling about the the drama therapy, therapy that we're playing through here, you know? And sometimes the answer is, I feel great about this. This is very cathartic because I really do trust this person. And this person and I are able to say I love you outside of the context of this dynamic, right? Um, and then other times you find yourself feeling like, gosh, that, that, actually that play we just did is, is rubbing me the wrong way. Yeah. So it's like nice to be in that world, but also be aware of how you're feeling. And again, it's like the communication, not only with the person, but like with yourself and with others to be checking on yourself as you're doing that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, the one last thing I did want to ask you about that I, because you kind of brought it up in the beginning, was um, you initially sharing this Kevin Goes to P-Town story as sort of your version of being vulnerable like others were starting to do when you were starting out Risk back in the early days. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like it was able to maybe like create another level of vulnerability for people or allow you to... I don't know, be more understand. Like, how did it change you sharing that story to then kind of like how risk evolved after you sharing that story? Well, you know what? It so I think of Kevin Goes to P Town and Kevin Goes to Kink Camp and Beyond Kink Camp as being a trilogy now. But of course I didn't know that after I did Kevin Goes to P Town. What happened was there was a huge Kevin goes to P town got more of a response than anything had ever gotten on the show before that point. People were emailing and saying, Oh my God, I was so, I feel like I know you on a different level now because my persona as the host of risk is usually to be, I don't know. I really turn up the volume on my goofiness and my exuberance and my, uh, you know, I, I tend to sound very happy on risk. Uh, and, and that's a mask of its own in some ways. So when people heard me telling this, you know, story about getting so vulnerable and being so hurt, a lot of people were very moved and, and wrote into me and, and it gave me the confidence to feel like, Oh, I'm on to something here. I've told all these stories on risk in the first year and a half or so about my sexual adventures when I was in my 20s. I think an interesting thing to note, though, is since then, since those first three radio style stories, which were so 
detailed and intimate and honest. I haven't done many. I haven't done many. Like, it was easy to tell that story because I faked his name. I'm sure he never heard it, right? Uh, and I never saw him again. I blocked him on Grinder. So, but, but I started having experiences after uh, those first three stories, radio style stories that I put out, uh, where those are like long lasting relationships, and to be talking about them would kind of be ruining the intimacy with that person. Like, I talk to my therapist about this often, and he'll say, well, you know, you could tell this story 10 years from now. You yeah, know? yeah, Cause, yeah. Because once again, in my 50s, I feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm still kind of closeted about some stuff. So it's a never-ending process of how much can I share, how much might I grow from sharing some of this stuff? And 10 years from now, will I look back and be like, oh, my God, I was so naive yet again in my 50s. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it goes back to that other thing we were talking about before of like, yeah, this stuff always changes based on who you are and your life and how things are changing in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for sharing all that. It was great to hear not only like your journey, but these new perspectives in the story and things like that. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, if people, I mean, I know you like host create this show Risk. Um if people want to find out more about that or anything else you have going on, uh, where can they do that? Well, the website for Risk is at risk-show.com. What's kind of exciting now is that we're starting to, we, we do all kinds of live shows, but right now during the shelter in place, we're, we're doing live shows online. So people can find out about that at risk-show.com slash tour. But the audio podcast of Risk, which is the end-all, be-all of it all, is uh, it comes out every Tuesday, and then every Thursday we run a an old, you know, rerun of something because we've been doing it since 2009. So definitely check out the audio podcast, and then on all the social media, you can find us at Risk Show. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks so much again for sharing, and it was great getting to talk to you about it all. Thank you. This is how we love, this is how we fight for something that's right. Love Hurts is produced, hosted, and edited by Brian Berlin. Theme music by Mickey Hommel. Show art by Caroline Mallon. You can find Love Hurts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about it. You can find Love Hurts on Twitter and Instagram at Love Hurts Pod, and our website is lovehurtspod.com. I'm Brian Berlin, and this is Love Hurts. <laughs> <laughs>